0: The story I am going to tell you on this Consecration Sunday is not my story. It was told to me by my husband Bruce in the early years of our marriage in the wee hours of a Christmas morning, but it's not his story either. It was told to him right here from this pulpit at a Christmas Eve service more than 20 years ago. Bruce and I were new parents with infant twins and they had that winter cold babies get that makes it difficult for them to nurse. So I stayed home with them while Bruce came to St. James for the candlelight service. And when he got back after midnight, he lay down beside me and said, I have to tell you about Brenda's sermon. Here's what I remember. It is another Christmas Eve, and Brenda is working as a hospital chaplain on a pediatric ward. And one of the patients is a preteen girl who is very sick and close to death. And the girl's mother sweeps in from the elevators, chatting loudly and in the company of several male friends. She's all dolled up on her way out to a Christmas party. And the staff wonders, what kind of mother makes such an inappropriate spectacle of herself flirting and partying instead of quietly keeping vigil at her dying daughter's bedside, on Christmas Eve, no less. Later that night, the mother returns to her daughter's hospital room, cheeks flushed, eyes sparkling. She sits down beside her daughter. And at once the space between them, between mother and child, grows so thick with intimacy and suffering love that all human judgment is put to flight. Brenda finds herself an unwitting witness to the sacred. Oh, holy night. Now, I'm probably getting a lot of that story wrong. I asked Bruce about it, and he didn't remember the details, just how moved he was. He described it as art and religion coming together. And human lives are changed for good by such a potent concoction. Not just by what it is, but by what it does by what it sets in motion, which is why I did not call Brenda to fact check this part of my sermon, because she gifted it to me from a distance without even knowing it or imagining what it might do. It arrived appropriately on Christmas Day, secondhand, and nestled in the tissue paper mystery of Jesus' own birth. And, like Jesus' exhausted mother, I kept it and pondered it in my heart. I remember wishing I'd been here in person that night. I remember wondering, is there more where that came from? I don't have to tell you the answer to that question. In first century Palestine, people flock to Jesus by the thousands. Yes, he heals the sick, and yes, he feeds the hungry, but more than anything else, Jesus tells them stories. Some are soothing, some have these sharp edges. More than a few are wildly exaggerated to the point of absurdity, like the one we hear this morning. They are stories about the reality and the righteousness of the kingdom of God. And every one of them has this hidden ignition switch with the power to unleash wondrous change in those with ears to hear. Today's story is called the parable of the talents. It is yet another in Matthew's long string of stories about getting ready for the great judgment and what exactly we're supposed to be doing between now and then. It's said that a parable is a bit like a joke, in that once you start explaining, it loses its punch. Still, I find it useful to know that the word talent in this story does not refer to a person's innate ability or developed skill, but is instead a unit of currency. In fact, a talent is an astronomically enormous amount of money. So while we may listen politely to this parable in church and think, ah, yes, yes, the master goes away and entrusts his property to his slaves, giving each a handful of talents, what Jesus listeners hear is more like the kingdom of God is as if a Fortune 500 CEO walks into the company mailroom and without a word doles out $10 million in cash to a few shipping clerks and then disappears for about 10 years. Is he joking? I don't know, but in this story, two of those clerks get busy right away, and they put all that money to work, and when the master finally gets back, each of them is proud to present exactly double what he gave them in the first place, and everyone is overjoyed. Well, Except for that third clerk. Suspicious and afraid, he decides to dig a hole and bury the master's money. Now, he doesn't lose it or spend it. He just wants nothing to do with it or with the master or with any long-awaited celebration. The first two clerks are escorted into the master's joy. The third is thrown into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. In hearing this parable, we may pity the third clerk, but it is not our job to rescue him from his fate. The story is the story. And in the words of Annie Lamott, when it comes to certain parable characters, we have to leave them where Jesus flang them. It is our job to remember that God says over and over in the Bible, just before giving someone a gift, hold out your hand. Do not be afraid. Of course, our master's gift, Jesus' gift, is not 30 pounds of gold or some innate aptitude or expertise. Our master's gift is his story, the gospel. Glad tidings of everlasting hope, unexpected transformation, and staggering beauty. This great good news of love for all the world, his story, becomes ours to tell. So it turns out that the story I heard from Bruce The story Bruce heard from Brenda on that long-ago Christmas Eve was my story, is my story. And not long after that, Brenda sat Bruce and me down to inform us kindly but firmly that we needed to give more to our church. She could tell that our hearts were here. And if we were to grow... If we were to move in the story we'd been given, and let it move in us, then our hearts and our treasure had to be in the same place. And this was a true leap of faith for us, and quite inconvenient as we were living paycheck to paycheck. But we had this gift in our possession. It was undeniable, mysterious, and powerful, and and precious. We didn't know a lot of things back then, but we knew we wanted more where that came from. Now this all happened long before St. James adopted the practice of consecration Sunday and its explicit call to, to transform pledging from the transactional, how much do I want to give? How much does my church need? To the unapologetically spiritual, What portion of my livelihood, of my income, is God calling me to give for God's holy purpose? So I am your guest this morning, but I am also a daughter of this parish, and I am returning home this day to the community of pilgrims where I learned how not to be afraid Where i began to do more than just listen to the story where i found i had to tell it and maybe this is the lesson of the parable of the talents on this consecration sunday because of course of course you would never bury millions of dollars in the ground so If you've been given the good news of Jesus Christ in this holy place, if it has rocked your world like it rocked mine and changed your life, I promise you the master is behind it. And now the ball is in your court. So will you take the risk of making his story your own? Will you set it in motion today, right now? do you think? If the answer is yes, then you are now part of this Jesus movement in a world where the loudest voices we seem to hear offer little more than howls of outrage. You are made in the image of a great artist, our storytelling God, and as a storyteller in your own right, you can offer another way. You can offer this spectaculture evidence of compassion and mercy and love that that puts human judgment to flight. I know you may worry sometimes about overstepping or getting the story wrong, but don't be afraid. The story entrusted to you is now yours, and it will multiply in the hearts of those who hear it, some you've never met, Others you think aren't listening. Your unwitting witness to the sacred, like countless others nurtured in this holy place, is a gift. So keep it moving. Give it away to people who walk in darkness that they might become the children of light.